who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Good day, good people. This is Brad King. You're listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast. It's been a little bit. This has been a year for me since we last talked. I got divorced. Was not as fun as that sounds. And work at Carnegie Mellon has been busy. Good busy. Lots of publishing, lots of editing. I helped edit Pamela McCormick's latest book and helped edit a book on the Entertainment Technology Center, which is the place that I work at Carnegie Mellon. What I've not been doing is writing, which is uh, not great, but lots of therapy instead. I used to put all my therapy down on paper was a large part of why I wrote, um, and I have been learning not to do that as much, to instead take some time and deal with things that were happening internally, just kind of fuck stuff up a little bit here and there, in a good way, but I literally spent 25 years of my life, 30 years of my life, 35 years of my life, writing out the things in my head in various states. Everything from that sort of first-person new journalist stuff to um, the more traditional stuff I did at Wired and MIT. Um, But it was always trying to work out the things going on inside my head that I didn't understand. Um, in the last couple of years, I've been in therapy uh, with a great therapist. Oh my God, I love her. She's the greatest. Um, 
and we basically tore down everything and we've been trying to rebuild it. So this year has been really interesting because there's been a lot of tearing down and rebuilding and I've not done it in a very graceful way all the time. But what I'm learning is that you don't have to be graceful as a human, which is a thing I did not know. What matters is that you be authentic and you talk about things and you share things and you allow people in. And in that, you find a certain grace that makes life a little bit easier, even though life is not easy. So that's why I've been away from the mic for a little bit, because I have been working things out. I don't exactly know if I'm at the end. I don't think that I am. I think I'm in the middle, maybe like act three. But it feels much better than it did a year ago. And it feels much better than it did two years ago. Um, which isn't to say that it's been hard. Which isn't to say that I've done things right. But it's been interesting. And it feels... It feels as good as I've felt in a long time. So... I thought it was time to get back to this and the writing. I have a plan for the new year because I always have plans that I'll be talking about a little bit more in the future. Since it's December 30th, the future is two days from now. Um, I have <clears throat> several episodes here in the can, so I'll be releasing um, many of these <clears throat> over the next few days uh, and then starting anew with, um, I have three people on my list that I want to get to, um, also people that I've known for a long time, because this season has been a lot of, has been a great deal about reconnecting with the writers and people in my life, um, who I respect and love, and whose work I think is great. First up is Julia Shears, who you're going to hear today. We talked, oh man, this is probably seven or eight months ago. Julia is an amazing writer, an amazing writer. Um, her first book, Jesus Land, she wrote, she was working on when we worked together at Wired. And you'll hear this discussion. She intimidated the shit out of me. And I am not somebody that is generally taken to being intimidated by people. Uh, I've been a fighter most of my life. And so when I sort of enter an arena, at least in the past, I always thought that I was going to be the toughest one there. Even if I wasn't, it didn't make a difference. Like that was the sort of mentality that I went in with. And man, there was something about, she was intense. Um, she had a desk. She sat two seats in front of me. Um, maybe three, maybe three seats in front of me because Farhad Manju, who's now at the New York Times, was like a kid and had started at Wired and he was two in front of me. And so like I looked at these like dynamos, like I'm literally sitting in the back, like staring at these two people, like trying to figure out how I'm going to compete with them at Wired as if 
you know, life is a competition as if anybody gave a shit about any of that stuff. But in my head, that was what was going on, right? Like I had to be the best writer at Wired. Uh, and I turned out volumes of stuff um, that was sort of my thing at Wired was that I knew, and I think in life, like I know lots of people, I'm very gregarious, and I will pump people for information. And so there would be days that I would have four, five, six stories at Wired, um, you know, the whole top of the page. Um, but like Julia and Farhad, Kristen, Philip Kosky, who I'm going to try to track down later to talk to, like they would write three or four stories a week, but they would be these fucking brilliant stories, like shit that I couldn't do, right? Like I was really good at figuring out what was happening in the moment. And like, it seemed like everybody else there was really good at like explaining not only what was happening, but like why this shit mattered and, you know, all the things that you want to do when you're at a magazine, even when the magazine is online. So Julia was like that person. She shows up from the LA times. Uh, she's working on this book that turns out to be this fucking amazing book. Um, then she writes a second book uh, called a thousand lives about um, the, the Jonestown killings, which is also fucking amazing. Um, and so it was great to catch up with her all these years later because one of the things that I have found in these last two years, these last two and a half years, is that the perceptions that I've had about the world are not the perceptions that everybody has, which is maybe not profound to you. But to me, it, it has been because I saw my life in a very certain way and I assumed that people saw me in a very certain way. And I locked myself into that certain way. And these last few years has been about uncoupling that and allowing myself, like Whitman says, right? To, I contain multitudes. And to understand that like this person that I thought that I needed to be or that I needed to be to survive the things that happened to me when I was you know, younger are not the things that have to define me now. And so talking to Julia, it was a fucking revelation and it was amazing because it's this person who I have this great deal of respect for and I have her books here and I fucking love reading what she writes, um, who I was so intimidated by uh, and who I wasn't friends with at the time because I didn't, I had my own, like I had this sort of, tough guy persona thing that I use to keep everybody away from me. And as you'll hear, and, and if you've read her work, like she had her own walls up um, because of the things that had happened to her, which were far more fucking traumatic than ever that had happened to me. Right. And it wasn't until 20 something years later through a phone call that we get to have this experience that, um, that I, that I love and that I get to share with you. So over the next several weeks as I release these pieces, um, it's going to be a lot of people, you know, this season is really a lot of people that I worked with that I was, that I knew I, I was going to say friends with, but I don't know if I had friends back then. Um, 
save for a few people because I never let anybody in. Um, and so re-experiencing them and hearing them and being able to sit with them, even virtually, has been great. So, after a long hiatus, I welcome you back to the Downtown Writers Jam podcast. And up next, Julius Shears. Okay, so we were as we were setting this up, I sent you an email and I, I remember the first day you showed up at Wired. I don't know why you. I don't know why you intimidated me, but wow. sh- but you you t- like because I think you had come from the L.A. Times before that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that. But like, it was a contract freelancer. It wasn't a big deal. I wasn't a staff writer. Yeah, but still, it's the L.A. Times. Um, oh. And so you and I think you, like you and Farhad kind of showed up mm. around the same time. Um, so there was like a turnover in the staff and like both of the two of you were like super go getter, like do all this stuff. And I was sort of like, holy shit, I had had a good time there because I had a good beat and got to write a fair, you know, kind of whatever I wanted to do. And then you guys showed up and I remember thinking like, well, fuck, we got to get our shit together because you were very serious about writing. Oh, gosh. Well, I can just say that you intimidated me, too, with your <laughs> UC Berkeley bona fides and your knowledge of technology. I showed up from the L.A. Times, like a general assignment reporter, first, and, you know, did the crime beat for a while. I didn't know anything about technology. I was intimidated, too, I have to say. That's so funny because what, what, beat, did you, what beat did you write on? At Wired News? yeah. Everything. You just kind of did what you did. Yeah, I'm more like internet culture, you know, the stuff that didn't require a lot of backgrounding in science or technology. (laughs) It was also hard to be in that office because Kristen Filipkowski was like the best science technology writer in the country. Yeah, she was great. Like, she was great. She knew, like, we would go out to lunch and I was like, I would talk to people. Like, you know, you're traveling around the country or whatever. And, and that was she w- that was the person that everybody always asked me about. Like, what is she mm-hmm. like? And I'm like, God damn, like, she's just like this little fashionista person who then, like, writes these amazing <laughs> science articles that I'm like, I don't even understand this. Um, exactly. She's great. She, uh, she and I would often be shopping on the side, you know, and <laughs> sending each other pictures. But shh, don't tell the boss. Yeah. Uh, well, the, here's a funny. So when I was there, the, I ended up writing a book, Dungeons and Dreamers, and I wrote it with John mm-hmm. Borland, who worked at CNET, and we covered the same beat. So as uh-huh. we were writing the book, if one of us would get a scoop, we would tell the other one, like, hey, you might want to call mp3.com because we'd have writing times after work. And we're like, we got two hours. Like, we can't, I can't have you not getting here because we got to write this fucking book. And so John, wow. John and I would share stuff back and forth all the time. Like, we wouldn't tell people what the story was, but just, like, you might want to call these two people, like, right now. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, so, you were very good at, like, leaping, breaking news, you know, and I just never felt, like, as quick on my feet. I mean, as I progressed through my career, I've always been more interested in just 
not the adrenaline of daily journalism, but more kind of like the, the deep dives into these weird internet corners. I did a lot of stuff on like internet chat rooms and just really bizarre things like all these websites where people would post pictures of their stillborn babies, for example. Yeah. Right. It's just kind of like internet culture was so bizarre. I mean, it still is. It was just easier to find back then because there wasn't as much internet, I think. Yeah. And it also was, there wasn't, you know, what is there? 4 billion people online. Like there wasn't that many, cause I had been online since 1984 so I'd been online wow. since I was 12 years old. So, Holy crap. yeah, for me, it was like I sort of grew up reading the people that would eventually found like Boing Boing and, you know, Mondo yeah. 2000 and like even the Wired folks. So when I got there, it was like that had been a lifelong dream for me to get there. Wow. Um, and so it was inter- interesting it, because you and Farhad really weren't. And that was what I thought was yeah. so interesting. The things you guys wrote were really this like these outsider views of this thing that I, that was very fundamental to who I was. And so like, uh, I still show people Farhad's piece, um, why Farhad can't read, which was just one of the, (laughs) like the best stories about, um, that topic. And anyway, like it was, so how do you end up there? Like, how do you end up at wired if you're not, I'll tell you what happened. So I was desperate to leave the LA Times. They had me on the celebrity beat. (laughs) So, yeah, you know, which is not why I paid a lot of money to go to journalism school was not to go cover, you know, what's her name? Pamela Anderson's divorce hearings from Tommy Lee, whatever the drummer guy was for Motley Crue. Right? Yeah. Where did you go to J school at? I went to USC. Okay. That's a good school. It's a very good school, but L.A. is all about celebrity culture. Yeah. You know, can I just tell you, I had this epiphany. One time, you know, I was living in Santa Monica, this beach town, working for the L.A. Times, and my editor calls me up and says, I need you to go to LAX. There's rumors that Monica Lewinsky is coming on an airplane. And for your listeners who don't know, Monica Lewinsky, of (laughs) course, is the intern who had an affair with President Clinton. Are we still calling it an affair? Well, wasn't it? I, I don't know. Just in the modern, like, in in the world that we live in now, it feels less a fairy and more. Well, he was married, so it was an, it yeah. was an affair. Creepy. I mean, it wasn't a relationship. Right. Yeah, and it was creepy because yeah. she was really young and he was old and he was the president. Anyway, so I get to LAX and I'm rushing up to the gate. This is before 9-11, of course. People <laughs> are coming out of the airplane. And I am standing right next to this woman from hard copy who is wearing a leather mini dress with this big gold zipper up the back. And a mini, it's a leather mini dress, high heels. I mean, she looks like a prostitute, right? And I'm there in my Ann Taylor suit and my (laughs) penny loafers. And we're both calling out, is Monica Lewinsky on the flight? And I was just like, I'm like, no, 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 no. This is a really bad vision of myself. This is not where I want to be. Not. Oh, I just felt so trashy in that moment. You know, so I wanted to leave L.A. and that whole celebrity culture. And um, so both the San Francisco Chronicle and the Examiner flew me up for interviews. And then a couple months later, they, the Examiner went under. Yeah. And the Chronicle brought on a a lot of their staff, right? Hired a bunch of the staff. So all of a sudden there was a glut of newspaper reporters. (laughs) Right. 
right? And so then um, Wired News was the only place that happened to be hiring at the time. And so I applied and and I got the job. And my my fiancé at the time uh, read Wired magazine religiously. So he was impressed, but I was just kind of lost, I have to say. That's so. I wonder if that is why. I'm wondering if that is why you intimidated me because you. Like, so when I first got to Wired, my first day, like I knew all about this mm-hmm. stuff. I was at Berkeley. I was working full time and going to graduate school at night. My thesis was on technology writing. Right, like I was Ooh. there. Was I was steeped in this, so I I wasn't worried about you know, the writing or understanding of the stuff. But my first day, George Shirk or Allison McCondre, one of the two of them, literally gave me a computer and said the deadline's at 5 p.m. and walked away. And I was like, <laughs> like, holy shit. Like, I couldn't log into any of my email. Like, I didn't do anything. And I ended up writing some mm-hmm. shitty story about independent bands and MP3s and, you know, <laughs> like some generic thing that in 1999, like, probably people were like, oh, that's really interesting. And... uh I didn't talk to anybody for like a month because I was so terrified that I was in over my head Um, Mm. because I didn't, Mm. they didn't give me a beat. They just said, start writing. I ended up writing about entertainment technology and culture because yeah, like that was just the easiest thing for me to do because I, I knew about it. (laughs) See, see, you could, you could have been that person standing next to the hard copy reporter yelling out for Monica Lewinsky if you like entertainment and celebrity. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really like the celebrity so much as I liked the way in which it was changing. I didn't like, I don't like authority as you may remember. And I don't like oh, yeah. gatekeepers. And so to me, this breaking down of, I have now since revised that <laughs> as I've seen the world turn into a dumpster fire when all of a sudden anybody can do anything. But it was just, it was, it was such an interesting time. And I thought being at Wired, being at the magazine first and then being at Wired News from 99 to 2000, because you were there to like what, three or four, 2003 or four? Um, yeah. 2003, I believe. Yeah. It was just, yeah, I, quit, I quit to write my first book. Yeah. But it was just, that was the time to write about that stuff. Like the world was in this transition. Like, I don't think I'd like doing it today. Um, but everything yeah. was just up in the air. It was back more then. interesting. It was more interesting back in the day. There, I don't know. It just seemed new and exciting, and now it just seems like I don't know. Yeah, I, I just feel jaded, jaded a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Working at Wired, it's funny. I think everybody that worked at Wired in that time is a little bit jaded about technology. I don't think I don't know yeah. any of us that are like, oh, yeah, it's fucking great. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, well. It's, yeah, yeah. I think Farhad still now he work covers tech for the New York Times, of course. So, but even that. <laughs> but even his writing was always sort of contrarian about it. Um, did you his book uh, True Enough, which I keep trying mm-hmm. to get him to write a second book, is really this contrarian view of like how the internet and technology. Are, it's the precursor to the world we live in today. Like that book, huh. which was written fifteen years ago, was about how the internet was segmenting truth and allowing people to believe what they wanted to believe. And so, of course. right. Like, and, and that's the, like the most far hot thing in the world to be 15 years ahead of what fucking happens because yeah. that little child prodigy who's turned into like a grown up oh man prodigy, uh, 
he like, but that was sort of being on the outside and being able to look in and having that. So I never really viewed him as a technology writer. So as much as a, right. like a classic, he's like a classic critic of technology. Um, yeah. He and Tony Long, the Luddite in the office. <laughs> yeah. You know, Tony Long and <laughs> do you remember when Tony Long and I almost got into a fist fight after 9-11? Over what? Remind me. We were in a budget meeting, and my cousins are firefighters, and he was making the point that we don't refer to anybody who was a... And he was right. He was right. But at the time, uh, he said, we don't refer to first responders as heroes. And I yes, lost my... Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I lost my shit and came out of the chair and, like... Tony and I ended up going and getting drunk that night. We were just like, man, 9-11 has <laughs> fucked up everything. But, like, Rockmas, John Rockmas was terrified that he and I were going to come to blows. And Tony and oh, I were just like, we're, like, I was an old man when I was 25. Like, and Tony's been an old man forever. Like, it was just some yeah. old man bull. But it was, that was, anyway, that was some crazy. We, we could have a days. whole, we could have a whole wired night. We could. So. We could. Now, you, how do you get to USC? Like, you're from Indiana. I am from Indiana. I, uh, I got sent away when I was about 17 when I went to a reform school in the Dominican Republic. Was it that late? I th- yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. So that's what my first book is about. Right. Which is great, by the way. And you were writing that at Wired, Yeah. I was. I was trying to work as a journalist by day and then work as a, you know, memoirist at night where you had to be in touch with your feelings and lose your impartial veneer. Yeah. And it was really hard. It, it was super hard to do. So, so you're, I quit. Yeah. So, but you're, so you're in Indiana and you have brothers and sisters. How many brothers and sisters? I have uh, two bio sisters, one bio brother and two adopted brothers. Um, so I, we have six kids all together. Yeah. And your parents were f- pretty hardcore fundamentalist religious folks. Christians. Yeah. yeah you're right. Um, and so what was growing up in the early years like before you went to reform school? You know, it was hard. I have two adopted African-American brothers and growing up in Indiana in a small town. And then right when we're about to go to high school, our parents moved us to a rural location where there were no people of color. Um, it was it was really tough. It, I'm not going to lie. It was tough. Um, so my brother David was my same age, three months younger. And so my first book is called Jesus Land, and it's about my relationship with David from when he was adopted around age two um, until about age 20. So, yeah, it, it was rough. And I think, you know, if you want to talk writing, I think I felt unable to express myself in a lot of ways growing up in that household. Um, and there were a lot of dark secrets, and my diary was often my best friend. So I think writing for me was always a comfort, you know, a way I could express myself without being belittled or interrupted. And I think, <laughs> you know, I teach memoir now, and I know a lot of my students feel the same way. I, I, so I'm in, I, I started this trauma therapy like two years ago, 18 months ago. 
my life was not what? like your life is. Your story is far different than mine, and uh, and went far harder. But um, one of the things that my therapist told me, she told me two things. She's like, if you hadn't been a writer, you'd pro- the 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 post traumatic stress that you've gone through in life there's a good chance you would have either killed yourself or self-harmed. She's mm-hmm. like, that's just sort of what, yeah. I've, what I've seen in life, like people that don't have a place to put that. And she's like, and mm-hmm. also writing is a way for you to make sense of a world that doesn't make sense mm-hmm. and that people yeah. around you are acting like makes sense. But And so you feel <laughs> crazy, right? And so you're like, mm-hmm. this is the only space I have where I'm not crazy. Is that? Yeah. It? See, I like I like your therapist. That is totally it. <laughs> that she nailed it. I, you know, before I wrote this book, was going down a really bad path, a really bad path uh, emotionally. You know, as far as getting myself in a situation that weren't healthy. Um, and it took actually. I quit my job. I broke off my engagement, and I moved into this apartment in Oakland. And I just took a year and. Worked on the book. I had some money saved up, of course. Yeah. But it just it just took that kind of solitary time of working through my path and getting it on the page and just feeling like, all right, now it's on the page. I'm going to close that cover, and there it is. It's out of me. It was kind of like an exorcism in a way, just getting all that crap out, right? Right. Acknowledging it, staring it in the face. You know, trying to make my way through it intellectually, like why these things happen, things that no one ever talked about. Yeah. It was really hard, but it was so, you know, cathartic, I have to say. And people, you know, that's not why I wrote the book. You know, maybe it was at a deeper level. Um, but <laughs> I think if you look at it, it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, you know what? And it's just like, I, you know, I really wrote it. And, you know, spoiler alert, my, my brother David did not survive our childhood and I should mention here that my parents were very much followers of what is it Proverbs 13 26 bear the rod spoil the child there was a lot of physical abuse in my house growing up a lot of intimidation a lot of you know emotional distance by my parents and um you know he he didn't make it he didn't make it so for me having a record of what it was like, what he went through, being adopted, being black, being brought up in this, this, you know, family of Christian zealots who are also physically abusive and emotionally withholding. I just wanted there to be one record of his life, you know? Right. Well, you were making sense of his life for him as well. I mean, that's how I I read the book. He was no longer... Yeah, I mean, he was no longer around, obviously, and I couldn't write it from his perspective. Right. I just wanted people to know that he existed. Right. You know, that was important to me. You right, know? but you're, but the, yes, and it's obviously not from his perspective, but there is no. a fair amount of David in the book. Like, I got oh, done yeah. with, you know, I got done with the book and felt like I understood. You know, as much as you can understand somebody who's not that you've never met and isn't around, Um, because you had talked very, very sparingly about him at Wired, Mm -hmm. but that book felt like you know it was a it was the relationship in full. Like you saw some, it just I it it felt very much like he was not just a character in your book. Yeah, Um, right. Well, that's that's what I wanted. I wanted you know the. 
the memoir is about my relationship with him. You know, what it was like right. to grow up with the same age, adopted black brother, go through all of this, and then be sent away together to this Christian reform school, this punitive Christian reform school, where, you know, all of a sudden it, we had a common enemy right. in the administration, right? The, the aggressor. So, you know... So the, I love that people read my book and they write me and they feel like they they know my brother, like they they understand him and you know that the book moves them somehow. I mean that that just means a lot to me. And you know it's it was interesting as you said that you were going down a dark path because we were not. I mean we were not friends at Wired. Like we were not. I always got the impression that you did not like me. Um, Aww, I'm but sorry. I, well, but I also like what I over the years as we've talked and I've heard you say things like that, I sort of I can reconfigure that not through my lens, right? Like not through like, oh, this is about me, but that there was shit you were working out. Yeah. I was in a bad space. I was yeah. having you know, I was in a bad relationship uh that I you know, I broke off when I finally quit wired I, I just yeah I and I and I wasn't I wasn't a very verbal communicative person I mean for me that's what the page is for <laughs> right right whereas I tell my therapist like I'm the I do the same thing but in the opposite way I am a wall of sound but I don't tell anybody mm-hmm. anything I don't want them to know so mm-hmm. people hear lots of things and are like well that's a gregarious motherfucker who will talk all night and then they'll walk away and go, I don't actually know anything about him. Uh, right? Because I don't really, I, you know, just the stuff that I grew up with was, um, you know, I had to navigate around some mental health issues that made me sort of swallow parts of who I was that I just internalized. And so as I went out in the world, I realized like, oh, well, I can continue, like, Nobody really wants to hear about me, so I'll just give them this other thing. Um, right, it, right. It, That's how I remember you being very kind of gregarious, and loud. I got the feeling like a good old boy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So, and you know, it's yeah. been it's it. I find that like one of the beautiful parts about getting older, and particularly like therapy, is being able to like uh, reconfigure those old memories. And be like, okay, like, you and I did, we were not friends, whatever, just because we had stuff going on. But, like, there were all, like, you were also doing this thing that becomes this beautiful fucking book, right? And so I can sort of look back on that and go, oh, yeah, okay, like, I understand this and I understand this interaction and these kinds of things. Because you didn't seem, um, you there was a woman that used to come to our gym on the first day. She wanted to be a competitor and she announced like, I am not here to make friends. And that's kind of how I felt about you when you showed up. Like, I am not here to be anybody's friend. I'm here to like write my memoir (laughs) and be really good at my job. I'm sorry. I, that was not, I was really quiet and had my head down a lot because I felt like I I was in over my head a lot of times because I did not care about technology. I didn't know anything (laughs) about it. And and so that's probably what you were seeing. I was just kind of like desperately probably Googling, you know, what is a hard drive? (laughs) (laughs) There was a good chance that I was also, that's why I sat in the corner so nobody could see my computer. You were like in the middle, you were like along that wall. Like I put myself in the back corner, like fuck Mm -hmm. this stuff. 
Um, yeah. So, so how do you go from Indiana to USC? Oh, okay. So Other than you want to get as far away from Indiana as possible. I wanted to get the hell out of that place. Um, it's why I ended up at Berkeley. And <laughs> yeah, and then you're back there now. You're back in the Midwest. I just wanted to get out of the Midwest because my experience was such that I didn't want any reminder of the Midwest. So I majored in Spanish for my undergraduate degree and then moved to Spain. And uh, where did you go to undergraduate? Calvin College. Okay. Probably never heard of it. No. It's a it's a private Christian school in Michigan where all of the Calvinists send their children. Yeah. And I was and, brought up Calvinist. And so. this is the middle of that, right? Like that's this is the the Midwest is where that's at. Oh yeah. This is where, you know, all of the, the Dutch Calvinist Christian reformed people, they they all it's like a it's a it's a place you go to meet people who are in your tribe if you want to stay in your tribe, right? So yeah. it was a little bit disturbing. Everyone kind of looks like me, tall, <laughs> Dutch, blonde, <laughs> you know, blue-eyed. It was, it was kind of eerie, um, kind of creepy. Uh, so after, as soon as I graduated, I moved to Spain, didn't have a job. <laughs> I moved there during, like, the worst recession of, like, 19, <laughs> remember the early 90s? Yes. Yeah, um, and I and I struggled a lot, but eventually I found work as a translator and teaching English. So uh, you didn't have that job when you went there. You were just like, "Fuck it, I'm getting on a plane." No, I actually told my parents that I was going to go work for some missionaries. Believe it or not. No, I totally believe you said that. No, I did. I yeah. did. And then I just never showed up because I was like, "Hell no, I don't want anything to do with missionaries." Did they Again, did they life, know how much you like they had to know how much you hated this? How much I hated what? The them? The religious stuff. <laughs> yeah, all of it, right? Like all of it. The religious stuff. Well, I mean, it was complex because they sent me to this uh reform school that was Christian and the only way you could get out was by behaving a certain way. And this isn't my first book too. I mean, they would keep kids until after they were eighteen. So you had to uh, to get out. You had to profess, you know, profess a love for Christ and all of that. And then I went. They sent me to a Christian school. I didn't, you know. I guess I could have gone to a public school and paid my own way. I just took the easy way out. So, you know, it's kind of buried deep inside me. I, I didn't really feel comfortable talking about my beliefs, but you know, I was silently noticing the hypocrisy. <laughs> and, you know, realizing that religious doesn't equal good and, you know, making these discoveries on my own. But I just wanted, you know, I wanted to get away. I had been to Spain for a semester abroad when I'm, during my junior year and fell in love with it. It was so like the opposite of the Midwest, I felt. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I, I just... I just went. I just went. I figured I figured out when I got there. I mean, that's... You know? So I walked... What? This, so w one of the things that I... And maybe you know this about yourself, but, like, one of the things that... all Like, I've always been in awe of you, and particularly after reading the first book, but even the way you approach the second book, A Thousand Lives, is that you're really fucking brave. 
And I know bravery is oftentimes born out of fear, right? Like, I have no other choice but to do this thing. And then from the outside, people are like, well, that's very brave. But, like, to go through the the school, right, the mission, the, and, and then to just, like, get on a plane and go to Spain. Because what? how old are you, 22, 21, 22, 23? Uh, 21. And to just say, like, yeah, parents, I'm going to do this and then not do it. Oh, yeah. That's incredibly brave. Oh, my God. I was such, or foolish. I got to Madrid in August when (laughs) everyone is on the coast. Madrid is empty. It's baking hot. (laughs) And I'm walking around with my resume, and I'm like, hey, I have a bachelor's degree in Spanish. Of course I'm going to get a job, right? I was so naive. I'm like, look at me. I can speak Spanish. I have a degree thing. I can speak Spanish. And I... You know, and all my uh, teachers were actually from Latin America, so there was a full pronoun I never learned. <laughs> you know? So, so yeah, I was knocking on doors in the heat, and people are like, no, you know, we're not hiring, and do you have a work permit? And it's like, oh, shit. Right. I did not really? think this through at all. <laughs> I did not think through it at all. And how yeah. long were you there? I was in Spain for four years. Holy shit. Best years of my life, but I went through hell, and I grew up. So what do you mean? I got smart real fast. What do you mean you went through hell? I I had some really bad things happen to me there. Um, You know, I think I was a naive, sheltered girl when I went to Spain. And I came back a woman and a bit more streetwise. I said so when I couldn't get a job in Madrid, uh, I was like, you know, you got to go out to the coast. That's where all the work is, you know, in the service industry, tourism industry. So I go out to this little town called Benidorm, which is kind of like Fort Lauderdale. It's like <laughs> this sleazy little town where all the Europeans go. And there's these giant clubs, discos. And I got work as a go-go dancer. <laughs> I think I remember this story. <laughs> because and I was, cause you're I was, like, I need money because I need a place to live and food costs money. Exactly. You know, my, my aspirations of being like this famous translator or working in a, you know, in an office at a desk and all that. Yeah, you know, it went out the window pretty quickly. And, um, yeah, so I was working as a, uh, as a go-go dancer in this huge club. And I was so dumb that I was being paid in cash, and I took that cash and I kept it in my suitcase. Oh no! And I was living. No. And I was living in this flat with a bunch of other like international um, people who were there to work in the tourism industry. You know, it was just it was it was disgusting. It was like a college dorm. There are people moving in and out. And meanwhile, I am keeping my cash that I've been earning all summer <laughs> in this suitcase Uh, and people know about it and so of course one night I get back and all our money is just it's gone and gone after you had a long cry Uh, it was my somebody I thought was my friend oh you knew who did it yeah I took this woman in I I came across her on the street, like, crying in some bar and giving me some sob story that I now realize is probably manufactured. 
And I invited her to stay in a squat and, you know, I got her a job as like a waitress or something. And yeah, yeah. And um, she, she left. She uh, just took all of my cash and left back to Wales. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what did you do? So I went back to work. A friend, <laughs> well, I called a friend that I knew in Valencia and I stayed with her for a couple of days, and luckily I was able to get a job teaching English to, to businesses. Yeah, so. And so is it after the end of the four, are you writing at this time, or are you just sort of, no. in, you're just in the world? I'm just trying to survive. Just, you know, it just I was so naive and so trusting and so ignorant of the ways of the world, Right. So, you know, it just, but I needed that. Sometimes you just need a kick in the pants. It's like, you know, stop being such a fool. Well, I will say, like, when I was, I've told this, whenever my students ask me how I got to Wired and, like, how I got a career, I was like, well, I'd been on the Internet since 1984, so I was using email and message boards and shit like that for most of my whole life. So I got to college. I didn't fill. So my dad filled out my college application and wrote my essay. Like I can never fucking be a politician. Like I was not plan. Like I had some baseball scholarships, but other than that, I didn't really plan on going to college. And uh, he was like, "Yeah, you're gonna somewhere." I have the essay, and like it's my dad writes on with a ruler so that his writing is straight. I'm like, I don't know how these people read this thing and thought that a teenager wrote it, but whatever. So I'm at Miami University in Oxford, and starting about my junior year, I would email newspaper editors across the country at, like, weekly newspapers and, like, the Village Voice and just tell them, like, hey, I'm coming through town. Can I have lunch with you? And I would get in my mm-hmm. car and, like, drive across the country. I wouldn't go to class for, like, weeks at a time, just leave college. <laughs> and dr- Because I'm from this little town of 5,000 people, and I thought the only way I'm ever going to escape is if I get to know people across the country. Oh, funny. But, you know, I had That's no brilliant. money for hotels and shit like that, so I'd sleep in truck stops. Um, <laughs> and I took biodegradable soap, and I would shower in, like, public fountains. Like, you know, so so that I didn't like, you know, fuck up their stuff. And like, if it was like a beach town or something, I'd sleep on benches. Like I was a total hobo for like three years, but it's the same thing. Like, that is amazing. But, but it's no different than what you did. Right. Like, it's like, like you're from nowhere. Gotta get the hell out. Right. Yeah. I've told people when you're from nowhere, there's not a bad way out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Well, it's probably a little bit easier for you to be, you know, pseudo quasi homeless because you're a male. Um. <laughs> yeah, and like, but when I slept in truck stops, this was before I realized how safe truck stops were. Like, I used to leave the car engine running just in case, oh, gosh. like somebody came up. You know, you roll down the window a little bit, and like, I'm like, well, I don't know who's going to come up and try to do something. So, right. you got your wow. big hunting knife in the car, and you're like, I guess this oh, is. Geez. But you know, but. <laughs> You think back to whatever 22-year-old you, and you're like, why did you put that shit in the suitcase? And I'm like, why was I sleeping outside in South Carolina? Like, what Like, what about that seemed like the best career path? <laughs> <laughs> it all, but it all worked out, right? It all worked out. Yeah, that's why I always tell my students, I cannot help you at all. Because everything I did, like, was not 
I don't know anybody else who did it except for like you. <laughs> not recommended. Yeah, right. Like it's got to be an easier way. You only do that if there's not enough parental supervision. Like that's when you do shit like that. Yeah, exactly. So exactly, you're at this point like 25. You're in Spain. Like, is that when you go to graduate? Like, what? Ha- like, what happens when you come home? Oh my god. Okay, so there's a there's a little parentheses here, and that is I fell in love in Spain with this tall, dark, handsome Spaniard. He was an anti-terrorist agent um, named David. David in Spanish, and we lived in this beautiful apartment in the old center of Valencia. And I thought, this is it. I got it made. I never wanted to return to the United States ever. To me, the United States was just bad memories. But, there's always a but. (laughs) (laughs) While we were together, he, David, slowly started exhibiting very strange behavior, um, became more controlling. And then I found his journal where he uh, was talking about being able to read people's minds. And, Holy shit. You know, yeah, and it just got really weird. He, it turned, he had a psychotic break, and I ended up having to put him in a mental hospital. Really? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken. So I returned to the States unwillingly. <clears throat> Have you talked to him anymore? No, he got da- he was dangerous. He had a gun and, you know, he, he became violent yeah. towards the end. So I had to break it off cleanly. And, him. like, get out of there. So you came yeah, home. Yeah, I had be- to get out. So you, so then you're home, but you're not coming back to Indiana. That is not where you're going. No, no, no. I went to Maryland. I had a sister in Maryland, and I was like, you know what? I, I need to get back. You know, I had this idea. I didn't want to write about myself. That was too painful. It didn't even occur to me. I was just, I think because I was brought up in a very cloistered environment, Yeah. I was incredibly curious about other people and what they were like and what it was like to, like, you know, to live in different parts of the country in different situations. I was just very curious about people in general, so I decided I wanted to become a journalist. So when I went, uh, came back to the, to the United States, I went to go live with my sister in Maryland and then applied to UPI, United really? Press International. Yeah. You know, the press agency, I don't know if it longer exists anymore. But, um, and I applied to be on their Latin American desk, and they sent me a test. This is all by fax back in the day. And they act- yeah. And they actually hired me. And I was so excited. It's like one of those times in your life where you just need a break. Yeah. And I got that break, and I was so excited. So they trained me in Washington, D.C., and then sent me to Miami to be on their Latin American Oh, that's a great was- gig. Oh, it was great. Yeah. Um, I was the only non-native Spanish speaker on their Latin American desk, and I was translating wire copy into Spanish on deadline. I mean, it was incredibly hard, um, and I was working the graveyard shift. Of course you were. <laughs> right? Yeah, I had to prove myself, but it was just such a, it was such a big break, you know, and while I was down there in Miami, that's when I applied to journalism school and got into USC. 
And so how long were you at UPI? Like a year? Oh, no. It was just uh, God, like a summer. Oh, really? And then you were like, yeah. okay, now, now I got this other thing and I'm going to go to California. Yeah, I just, I just, I don't know. I had it in my head that, you know, I needed to go to journalism school to become a journalist. Yeah. I mean, I guess I could have just, you know, applied to Miami Herald or something like that. But I wasn't a journalist yet. I was a translator, you know, so I was translating journalistic stories, wire stories right. into Spanish. But it's not the same thing. Um, so, so yeah, so I got accepted and I knew I wanted to live in a, in a large city where there was a Spanish-speaking population. That's why I, I honed in on USC. And did you have an inkling at that point that you wanted to do longer stuff than newspapers, or were you just like no. journalism? <laughs> no. You're just like, I would like to I be didn't. a journalist, whatever that means. Yeah, whatever that means. It sounds so glamorous, you know, it's a stable profession. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Pretty I had the well. same fucking thought, Julie. I had the same thought. God, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, I, when I went, like, I didn't know anybody who was a writer, right? Like, to me, that was just some exotic, like, I wrote, I have everything mm-hmm. I've ever written since seventh grade in order, oh in binders. Like, I've known, wow. and, and at, the, at, the, at the beginning of each of the binders is a note to the graduate students who I was sure were going to be studying my work someday. Like, I was doing that back in seventh grade, right? Like, explaining to them, like, how to fucking read my shit. Like, I'm in this little town in the middle of... There's no reason for me to think that, other than I was, like, a voracious reader, right? And so, when I went to college, I took every English class, like, when I wasn't skipping, and I stalked every professor and was like, how do I get a job as a writer? And literally all of them were like, we have no idea. Because I didn't yeah. realize the difference between literature professors and writing professors. Um, <laughs> I thought they were the same thing. Like, that's how stupid I was. Right? That's funny. Right? So I'm asking. Well, that's funny. Yeah, I was asking, like, critical cultural people, like, how do you get a job at a magazine? And they're like, what are you fucking talking about? <laughs> like, right? What's, right? <laughs> Academic journal? Maybe we can tell you. Yeah. And you are not... <laughs> Um, I'm still friends with one of my, a couple of my professors from then. Uh, and right. both of them are, were shocked that I ended up being a professor for 11 years because they were not thinking I had the chops for academia. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I picked journalism because I thought it was a safer bet than fiction. I, I, I really wanted to be a fiction writer. I fell in love with writing when I was living in Spain and, of course, reading Hemingway and... Uh, Lawrence Durrell and you know just I had so much time on my hands and I'm like this is what I want to do but I thought the responsible thing would be to go to be you know be a reporter and then I'd have a lot of fodder for my stories and 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 like I said I thought that journalism was a better bet financially than getting an MFA had I known <laughs> right I you know right? I tell students at Wired we never hired we only we didn't hire at the magazine. We didn't hire. We rarely hired people that were journalists to be yeah. to do our long form stuff. Like it was people that were, had MFAs and were trained in writing, and then they would give them people like me, who was like a editorial assistant, to make sure they didn't make shit up. They were wow. like, "I can teach you journalism in fifteen minutes. I can't teach you <laughs> how to structure a twenty thousand word story." 
right? Like journalism That's school doesn't true. teach you how to do that. Right. They teach you ethics. They right. They teach you how to interview. They teach you the, the basics, which, like you said, I mean, that's, you know, anybody can learn rather quickly. Right. But yeah. putting together a long, like, a long narrative is really fucking hard to do. Mm-hmm. It's, it, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's not, no class I ever t- talked about that. It was all breaking news, daily journalism, kind of the basics. Right. So you go there and you graduate, and do you get your job at the LA Times? Like, is that what you're doing right after you graduate? So while I was in J school, I worked for a newspaper, a Mexican paper called El Financiero de Mexico. It's like their Mexico's Wall Street Journal. Oh. Uh, and I'm writing in uh, Spanish again. I covered the 96 Republican convention in San Diego. No shit. Yeah, that was crazy, right? And um, I did a lot of articles on the uh, immigration and uh, drug trafficking. And, and again, I was still quite foolhardy. I'm in my 20s, and I'm, like, driving down to Tijuana by myself and going to talk to the cops about drug traffickers. Are you kidding me? (laughs) No, I am not kidding you. I, I really don't know. I, I, just, I don't know how we weren't better friends because you're fucking crazy. I was crazy. <laughs> I'm glad I survived that because I stick out like a sore thumb and I'm driving my little Jeep around these back roads and like confronting the cops about, you know, collusion with drug traffickers. And just like, what the hell are you doing? Girl? And for people that don't know, like, how, you're like, what are you, like, five, seven, five, eight? Five, nine, thank you very much. Five, nine, like, and blunt, like, you literally would be sticking out. Yeah, I like, would, I, yeah. Yeah, when you rode into Tijuana, like, they would know, like, oh, here she comes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. And, and, like, spending weekends down there. Like, of course oh, you, you were. Know? But that's, you know, when you're a young reporter, that's what you want. You want the scoop. You want to write right. about stuff that's exciting and dangerous and interesting and, you know, and, uh, you know, I still have that, but I think my danger meter is a little bit more uh, reliable now than it was. Yeah, I tell people all the time, like, I was a maniac. Like, I was, I don't know what the statute of limitations on for things are, so I don't talk a whole lot about them. But, like, you know, I was in Austin before I, and bartending, and there were drugs and those kinds of things. Like, when I showed up to Berkeley, everybody, when they went around and was saying, like, what they did, they're like, oh, I covered the Middle East, and I did this and that. And I'm like, I kind of sold drugs and bartended. Like, (laughs) you know? So now that I'm 46, I'm like, man, if I can just find a quiet place to write and read and, like, have my dog be around, like, that's enough. You know, like... No, I hear you. It's funny how life changes. (laughs) I don't have any of that, like... What did I miss? I'm like, I didn't miss anything, goddammit. I wish I would have missed a few of the things that I saw. (laughs) Oh, tell me about it. So Yeah, I wish I could go back and slap that, you know, 25-year-old around and say, no, don't do it. Right? Like, trust me on this one. So you're working there, and then, um, so that's sort of the, that's the sort of interstitial between the L.A. Times? Yeah, and so then I graduate, and, um, you know, the LA Times, the biggest gig in town, of course. Yeah. And so I uh, start working for the business desk at the LA Times in the Valley. Um, and then ultimately, you know, they have a lot of satellite offices. So I got moved around a lot. I did cops, I did business, I did, you know, general interest stuff. 
profiles. It was it was great. You know, it, I loved it. I had really this amazing editor, Bob Baker, uh, who was super tough and could be really angry if you misspelled the word, but ultimately taught me how to structure stories. And yeah, the things they don't teach important. you in J school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, how do you hold the reader's interest? You know, oh, this, this is boring. Give me something better. <laughs> right. He was pretty harsh. Right. But he was harsh it. in the way that, like, say, our editors at Wired were just dicks. Not all of them, but we know who we're talking about. <laughs> oh, you mean the guy I got fired? Yeah, yes, yeah. I hate yeah, <laughs> that guy, right? Like, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so then you come to Wired and you eventually quit there and you go and this this sort of brings us into the book writing part of thing like you'd been working on the memoir when you were at yeah. Wired but then you quit and you move into this place in Oakland and so at what point like how, like what was the you write Jesus that had to be fucking hard to write that had to be the hardest thing oh, you've yeah. ever written in your life do you know what it was Brad I felt like I'd come to the point where okay I was 35 years old I was engaged to this guy who made a lot of money and I had a career. I had just written an article in Wired and some editor on the gaming addiction, I think it was. It yeah. was just kind of tongue-in-cheek. And I get this call from this editor offering me $50,000 to write a book about that. And I was like, I have no FN interest in writing about gaming and you know addiction. I just did this assignment because my editor wanted me to, so I had some fun with it. Anyway, things were going really well. And then, you know, like I said, I broke off my engagement. I quit Wired, and I just moved in this apartment. And my, my family, my sister's like, what the hell are you doing? You're 35 years old, and you're going to break off your engagement? This is like when you, you start having babies, <laughs> you know? <laughs> actually, from where you're from, that's actually way late to be having babies. It, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. But I was just like, you know what? I can't do any of that until I clear my conscience and I get this crap out of my inside that's been festering for years. I need to pull this stuff out and just put it on the page. You know, just get it out. It was it was a it was an exorcism of sorts. So, and, were you at the I'm grotto back. at that point, or were you just in your house, no. like being that crazy The Shining writer and just banging out pages? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like the pathetic crying into my pillow half the day writer. Um, yeah, so I, I, I just, you know what? It was hard because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't know how to write a book, like you said. Right. When you're used to, give, you know, writing 12 inches or, you know, a thousand words, and all of a sudden it's like you're looking at 90,000 words and 300 pages. It, it was really intimidating. Right. I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I was just kind of jabbing away at the story. And then slowly I figured out, you know, you gotta, you got to have this centered on scene. Like these important scenes from this narrative that can be tethered together with, you know, summary and, and musing. The, the three building blocks of narrative nonfiction, scene, summary, and musing, right? So it, it took me a long time. It took me a long time. And also when you're, you know, you're dredging up painful events and having to remember them and write about them in scene with very vivid details and be back in that mindset. I mean, it's, it's tough. It's like confrontation therapy or something. I don't know. I don't go to therapy. There's probably a word for it. Maybe you know it, <laughs> you know, where you rub your nose in your past shit. Mm-hmm. 
take a big whiff. I don't know what that's going to say. I don't know either. Like, here's, like, honestly, Mm -hmm. like, this is, this is, like, I go to a, like, I go to trauma therapy where they don't do that. Like, I go to the therapy that they take, they do, like, when soldiers come back with post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. And the last thing you do is rub your nose in it. It's it's really interesting. And so but writing is exactly that, right? Like writing is Yeah. You can't write well until you go into the I so Michael Lewis was I was his TA in college and he and I didn't fucking yeah. like each other and I ended up oh. writing this like 5000 word drunken email that called him a fraud and it became this big <sighs> thing, right? I didn't oh. know I didn't know he hadn't written he'd written Liar's Poker. He hadn't written anything else. Yeah, I didn't know he was going to be famous. And, uh, but the one thing that he, you know, said that always stuck with me was that every story needs a Darth Vader and you need to have this like central theme in this, whatever the protagonist is struggling against needs to be clear, but it can't just be Darth Vader can't just be bad. Like you have to understand why he's doing those things or else the story doesn't really hold up. Like even if your protagonist is three dimensional, he won't be, or she won't be because they're fighting against something. That's a flat thing. Right. Caricature. Yeah. And like, that's the closest to structure we got in graduate school. But I've, as much as I don't, you know, as much as I, I didn't enjoy my time with him, and, I'm, mm-hmm. and, and there was zero chance he enjoyed his time with me because I was a drunk, arrogant <laughs> asshole, right? Um, <laughs> so really, of the two of us, I was more at fault than he was. But that's the one thing that I sort of carried. And like, so when you're writing, as I read Jesus Land, uh, less of a thousand lives because I knew it wasn't as per- it, it wasn't personal, right? Like that was a book of journalism. That's fucking great. Yeah. But as I read Jesus Land, I just was imagining you trying to pull those scenes up. Because as much as I'm sure you thought you remembered them, when you put them on the page and you really had to when you really had to put them on the page, that must have been fucking hard. Like the hardest thing you've ever done. Oh after living them, uh yeah. Yeah. It was the hardest thing. Yeah, and you know, it, it was. And so there's, but living them, you, know, you don't have a choice, right? Like living them, that was um, done to you. This was a thing that you were self extracting. I guess that's what I meant, yeah. right? Like you were doing that because you needed to, as opposed yeah. to your parents imposing that on you. Right. Well, you know, I never went to therapy, so I think maybe writing the book was my therapy because yeah. then I was able to. The, the beauty of writing memoir, personal writing, essay writing, is that, you know, I would write these painful scenes. And there's like one scene, for example, we're at this boarding school, this Christian boarding school, and I am not allowed to talk to my brother because we got in trouble or something. And I hear a teacher confronting him and yelling at him. And then I turn around, I see the teacher punch him in the stomach. And I was helpless. You know, it was. There was nothing I could do to help him. And just, it's so painful, you know. And just having, writing that out and feeling that all over again. And it it was hard. But every time I went over that scene, it hurt a little less. And it became more 
more outside of me, more external, more literature. And that was what offered this tremendous healing was that I was finally able to tell to tell my side of the story. Right. I think because as a kid, I always, as a kid I always felt like nobody wanted to hear what I said. I was a very shy, quiet kid and I never felt I had a voice. And so it was empowering to finally write my side of the story. You know, and to write these scenes and then go through them and yes, feel that pain, but then every time you go into that scene and you revise it and you revise it, you become a little bit more distant from the story. You write a lot of angry drafts at first, at least I did for my book, and then eventually they evolve into something more coherent and something a little bit more nuanced. Everything you just described is it's it the therapy is called EMDR. Like that's it, that is exactly what trauma therapy is, which is sort of it's like you put butter on bread and at first it's this big chunk and you just kind of keep smoothing it over until it becomes part of the bread. Right. And it's no longer a thing that's separated from that. And it's something that you can control and, and manage. And it's how people, it's how they deal with traumatic stress is teaching you how to, to do the thing that you did through the book. Right. And I will tell you, like, and I, we've, we, I, we, I, we may have shared this a little bit over uh, emails or whatever conversation, but after that book came out, you, when we would talk, you were different. Like, you're different today. You may not see it, or maybe you see it, or people around you have probably told you this, like, because we're at a distance from each other. But there is a lightness around you that was not around you when I knew you. Not that it was dark, but it did, a heavy. I mean, light, like light and heavy. Like the world felt heavy when I met you, and it doesn't yeah. feel that way. Even just reading the stuff that you write and the posts that you make, um, it, yeah. that book felt like a, at least externally, a, like a line of demarcation. Wow. Well, I think you're right. I did feel a lot lighter afterwards I you know because I got it out so what happened yeah. when you found out that like because it was it was a New York Times bestseller yeah it sold a lot well, it was a- well but it also was impossible I tried to sell it on proposals which you know you can do with uh, nonfiction right and I, I, and I couldn't I couldn't you know and I got all of the usual excuses oh this sounds like a magazine article or I don't get it or whatever but it was such a personal story to me. I just decided I needed to write the whole thing, which I did. And then, you know, during this process, when my agent couldn't sell it, he became a real dick to me. Really? And at one point, he told me to stop emailing him. Oh. I you not. He was such a dick. Now, I remember I met him for the first time in Berkeley because he has people out here, um, and we went out for a drink and we're having, and I thought, oh, great, we're going to talk about plans, you know, who is he going to approach? And he looks at me across the table and he's like, so how old are you? Aren't you going to have children? No. How old was this guy? I don't know, like in his 40s at the time, I think. And, so, and you're in your like early, what, mid-30s? I was mid-30s. 
But I, I was just not that it makes like, a difference. Like that's an inappropriate thing for an agent to ask. I don't know why. It's what your aid was. It has nothing. Yeah, it has yeah. nothing to do with what <laughs> his job is. I was just blown Ugh. away. Did you? Yeah. So, so what happened was I'm just I was just like you know what, as part of this exorcism, I'm just going to write this whole thing. You know, I got the time. I'm just going to finish it. I don't care if there's just one copy self-published. I'll go put it in my local library, and voila, there it is. Right. A record of everything that happened, a record of my brother's life. And um, so I finished it. And then the first editor that he showed it to bought the book. <laughs> and ch- yeah. Oh, so you stayed with him. Well, I, I did because I just like, you know, you know how it is yeah. when you're a writer first starting out. It's like you're cowed by these New York people in publishing. Yeah. They seem so sophisticated and savvy. And what do you know about anything? And you also are afraid nobody else, like you'll tell this guy to fuck off and that'll be that. Right. Like yeah. you'll never yeah. get another agent. He'll tell everybody you're a bitch and that'll be the end of yeah. your writing career. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was just serendipity. He had stopped actively trying to sell my book. He was just at lunch with this woman who became my editor, uh, Megan Husted at Counterpoint Books. And over coffee, he asked her, so tell me about yourself. And she's like, well, my parents were fundamentalist Christians. We were raised on this island in the Caribbean. No shit. I think I remember this book. <laughs> I'm going to send it to you. So he, he sent her my book. She read it. She loved it. She championed it. And you know, Counterpoint is—it's not a big five publisher. It's an indie press, and they just did really well by me. You know. And, and it uh, did. I mean, that book did really well, and it it rightfully did well. Julia, that's a. It, it's a. I love the thousand lives, but Jesus Land is a great fucking book. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you. I've read it a couple times. Yeah. I've bought it for people. Like I have sent it oh, to wow. friends. Yeah, yeah. Like it's. I like. Oh, I'm f- fairly particular about the things that I like and don't like. Um, and that was just one of those. And I don't know if it's just because I knew you or because like I grew up in the Midwest. Except for that, I know lots of other people bought the book and it did really well. So I know it's not just that I know you, right? Like it's a legit. Yeah. You know, I feel really humbled. I have no idea. I am so grateful, and it was such a load off. It, it, it was amazing. I had no expectations sure. for it. Because um, we're writers. And the and, fact, yeah. <laughs> so you I mean, assume nobody's going to read what you've done. Yeah, I mean, I poured my heart and soul into it, but then it's like, you know, I did the best I could, and then it wasn't selling, and then all of a sudden it just took off. Yeah. You know, it became both a New York Times bestseller and a London Times bestseller, believe it or not. Um, so that, yeah, that was great. That and was great. But there was a moment there, I was just like, that's it. You know, I'm going to self-publish this little book and just stick it into my library shelves. I'm going to sneak it into the library shelves. And, and now there's legitimate copies in the library shelves. Right. I don't need to do that. <laughs> and, you know, when I talk about it, people have heard about it. Like I have to oh, tell cool. people the book I've written, right? Like that's we we sold like ten thousand copies worldwide. Like I will tell people about Jesus Land, and they'll be like, "Oh, I haven't like I read that or I heard of that." Yeah, like you are that's a recognized funny. name. Uh, I know, I know. It's terrible. It's a terrible <laughs> burden to be a recognized name. Uh, 
know. It doesn't translate into money, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, well, that's yeah. That, that's the that's the other part about being a writer. So, right? I just I, we just got a couple minutes left, so I, and I don't want to. So, what leads you then into like that's done, and mm-hmm. then you take on this. And we're skipping over a whole bunch of like you're very active in shutting down these kinds of places that your parents sent you. Like, right? You've been involved in that. Oh yeah, that so what, community. So what? Yeah. So what happened was um, my publisher asked me because there's you know there's there's scenes of kids being abused in the book, which happened, and they, and I was concerned about being sued. So they're like, well, as long as you have people who can stand up for you in a court of law you know, that it can say that this type of abuse happened, you're good to go. So we created this website of testimonials from alumni, and we had dozens of former students who wrote about things that happened to them. And so what happened, this is the beauty of the Internet, the first thing that popped up when people searched the name of the school was our alumni site. Really? It, it Yes. Yeah. So their their enrollment nosedived, and the school ended up closing. And that had to feel great. Oh, it felt fantastic. Are you kidding me? (laughs) And so what leads you to the next book? All right. So then I was uh, (laughs) working on a novel about this charismatic preacher who takes over this small Indiana town. It was a satire. It was a hell of a lot of fun to write. But I got stuck. And then I remembered, hey, Jim Jones was from Indiana. So I Googled Jim Jones, and I learned that the FBI had recently released all of their files on the Jonestown tragedy, right? So I probably have to back up for some of your listeners. Uh, The Jonestown tragedy happened in 1978 when a preacher named Jim Jones forced his followers at gunpoint to drink cyanide-laced punch. It wasn't Kuwait. Um, and, and this happened in Guyana, in a settlement in Guyana, South America. So once I learned that the FBI had released all of these files, you know, before... The people died, his followers died. They killed a congressman named Leo Ryan, the only congressman assassinated in the line of duty. So then it became a federal investigation, and FBI agents went down to Jonestown, and they collected every single piece of paper from the mud of Jonestown, almost 50,000 pages, almost 1,000 audio tapes. And so I submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to the FBI to get that material. And I started paging through it and I couldn't tear myself away. I remember you telling me this. We emailed about this and you were telling me about this. And I was, the book is really good in that because you did all that, like you, the book is not about Jim Jones, right? Like the book is about the people, um, which also makes sense based on your background, right? And who you are and what you grew up with, like fuck that guy. But you also get this really interesting sense of the people and yeah. and answering the question, which I'm sure you wanted to know, which I'm sure what everybody wants to know, which is how the fuck did they end up down there and why the fuck yeah, didn't they, they leave? Exactly. And, and you nailed it. I was interested. I was not interested in Jim Jones. He yeah. wanted to be famous. He wanted to go down in history. He has 
He's gotten so much attention through the years. I was more interested in what it was like to be part of this church that was supposedly about social justice, you know, racial justice. It was integrated at a time when churches really didn't have integrated pews. Um, And, you know, and I say in the introduction that had David and I walked by People's Temple here in San Francisco and looked in the door and seeing these black and white parishioners worshiping together, we would have been very intrigued because we really wanted to be accepted and to belong, and we grew up in the church. I mean, that would have been wonderful. So for me, what was most most interesting, more than Jim Jones, was like, what was it like to be a rank-and-file member of this church that's progressive and all about social justice, and then be, you know, go down to Guyana, where Jim Jones was creating this socialist utopia, thinking that you could come home at any time, that's what they were told, and then finding yourself trapped down there with Jim Jones talking about revolutionary suicide, that everybody's going to have to die as a statement for socialism, right? That's what interested me. Yeah. You know, what brought people to the church and what did they do once they realized that Jim Jones was intent on killing them? And it was... And you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but the church was doing social justice when they were up in San Francisco, right? Like it was, it was not just a front, even though it was a front, right? Like part of the front was, we're actually going to do good things to get these people into the spider web. So there was actually no way for them to even understand really what was happening because as as I'm recalling the book, like they were helping people out and they were helping people that weren't traditionally helped. They, you know, they had soup kitchens. They helped addicts check their habits. They had a free medical care for indigent elderly people. They had daycare for single moms. I mean, it was really this communal experience where it was about uplifting the people. So and the I people were really involved. Like, they were, like, the people who you're, the stories that you were telling, like, they didn't buy into the church so much as they were those kinds of people that wanted to help other people. And this was the vehicle for them to do that. Yeah. I mean, you know how it is when you belong to a church, it's not just about the minister. It's about this community and having a common purpose and the relationships you make within the church. So the same thing happened in people's temple, right? Jim Jones never mentioned this, idea of revolutionary suicide until (laughs) he had them all trapped in the jungles of Guyana. Right. Right? That's where he dropped the mask, was in Guyana, once he had them sequestered and off the grid. And believe me, I've been to Jonestown. It is remote. Oh, and and one, that's crazy that you've been there. Like, your life is so fucking insane, I can't even, I can't even be, like... I like to tell people, like, the stuff that I've went through, I, I now am at a point in my life where I'm the most interesting person at the party, but I don't think I would be the most interesting person at the party if you and I were there together. You may not tell the stories, but now that I know, I'd be like, this motherfucker, you guys don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm like a boring mom, man. I'm cooking Christmas cookies. I'm taking my kids to scouts tonight. Yeah, I know. <laughs> now you are, right? Now you are. Uh, well, listen... This has been amazing. Are you wait before we go? 
Are you? Do you have another yeah. book in mind? Like, what are you doing? A novel? Are you getting back to the novel? I do have a something I'm working on on the side, um, but nonfiction or fiction. And, uh, I have a fiction thing that I'm working on and nice. a nonfiction thing that I'm working on. Nice. So, so there's going to be more, and I won't even ask you about the movie rights and the things that are happening with film stuff because I'm sure we'll find out about all of that at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, Jonestown's been optioned uh, by a famous actor. That's about all I can say. But I don't know. We'll see what happens. You never know. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a hard movie to make because it is because it's not about yeah. Jim Jones. It's about all the people. Yeah. Like, it's about people you don't know, right? And so it's both an interesting story, but I suspect it's a very difficult book to figure out how to turn into a movie with a central cast. Yeah. I mean, without making maybe a, without making him the thing, right? Like, it's easy to make him the right. thing. Um, right. They're talking about maybe a television series or something even. Ooh. So. If you go to Netflix, that'll be so fucking cool. Fuck the movies. You want Netflix. <laughs> All right. I'll suggest that. Thank you. Hey, it was <laughs> amazing to talk to you. I know This is the first time I think we've had a conversation this long and probably ever. Um, crazy and it's great like I love your books I love reading your stuff I love coming across you in the New York Times book review when I read you doing that stuff uh, and I can't wait to see what you do next oh thank you Brad you are so sweet well let me know whenever you're out in the Bay Area and uh, we'll we'll go out yes well well, I want to meet your kids yes I want to meet your kids first and then we can go out there you go. Got to get both sides. It's nice to see the wild night life side. <laughs> yeah. All right. You have a good night, and I will talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good, Brad. Thank you. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. there it was she's amazing and great and all of the superlatives that I can think of I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed having that conversation and I'm sorry that it took so long to get out but also this isn't a job so I'm not that sorry if you like the podcast um, please go to iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, wherever you downloaded this and leave a review. That would be amazing. You can go to my website, thebradking.com, and if you sign up for my newsletter, get a free book, and soon I will have a second book that's available um, for free as well when you sign up. All of those kinds of marketing things. Someday I will finish So Far Appalachia. I have the goddamn thing finished. I just have to give it the last edit, um, which with this year I did not do. Um, it is the eternal project that looms in front of me. I have so many other writing projects I want to start that I feel guilty about starting because I don't have this fucking book done. So hopefully 2020, the roaring 20s, will see that end. I have some great interviews coming up. And until then, I'll see you around the internet.
Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused. And you have no idea where this came from? No. She was sent here anonymously. Mm-mm, not she. They, maybe? W- wait. I've never seen anything like this. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. My grandfather was a journalist back in the 60s and 70s. He specialized in strange stories. Who are they? How are they connected to the skeleton? Play the tape. You'll see. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often?